live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. What's Wagner's rule of life number four? Nothing good happens outside a strip club at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm sorry, I understand I might be like a dog with a bone on this, but this is just fundamentally wrong. It is an insult, but let's tee this up. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 414-799-1620. I'm sorry, I think this is absolutely ridiculous. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. So, Eric Bilstead, I haven't told you about my my office almost faux pas yesterday. Ah, okay. Uh-oh. Okay, so here, here, yesterday was my birthday. Yes, happy right. birthday, by the way. Thank you, thank you. I didn't have a program, so I was, I, the, the brewers were on, mm-hmm. so I did not have to go in. Um, yesterday morning, wake up, and my wife says, I've made a mistake. Okay, what, what's this? And she said, I, I ordered you a sheet cake. For your birthday, that I wanted you to take into the office to share with your coworkers, and, you know, and, it, and said I'm, I'm going to go pick it up across the way at Sendex and stuff. And it's a sheet cake, and it, you know, it's Happy Birthday, Jeff. And you know, I mean, I, I I'm, there's no way I'm going to eat this whole sheet cake and stuff. And she said I didn't realize that you had the the day off. And I said I did. She said, Well, why don't you take this in anyways? And I said, Okay, well, that that's fine. So it's great. So I come in yesterday morning, and, and so the the lovely and charming Fran, she she packs up the cake. It's mm-hmm. in the box. And she goes down into our basement. She grabs some like plates that you're gonna take, and she grabs these napkins. Okay, and she throws them all in the bag and sends me off to work. So I, I you know, I come in here, um, go into our appointed break room, and I start, you know, laying the stuff out. I take out the cake. You know, I put out the plates, and they're kind of like colorful plates and things like that. And then I've got the napkins, and I'm trying to just kind of like open the napkins. And the napkins are, are very, they're, they're like party napkins and stuff, and they're, they're cool. I'm not really looking at them until I finally flip them over, and I see on the front of the napkins, they say, happy retirement. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, <laughs> well, I'm trying to think. I, I, I kind of sent her a note saying, are you trying to tell me something? <laughs> Or is, is there something that is this like your not so subtle way of telling you telling me that it's kind of like time to go? And she said, "Oh, I, I don't, I, I have no idea." I said, "Where did we even get these napkins Man, from?" Man, that rumor could have spread like wildfire. Well, that's right. It's kind of like happy retirement. So I, what I did is I actually I took them all and I. I I put them in my desk, so I figure maybe at some point in time, or when <laughs> you're having one of yeah. So if you're ever having one of those days and you're figuring that's it, and you you want one of the happy retirement things, I've got a whole okay. stack of these in in my desk. But it was like, yeah, I, I, I you know, not happy birthday, but happy retirement. And I and I wasn't. So where do we? Where did this even come from? This mm-hmm. was in our basement, and she said, well, she thought a friend of hers because she's retired. She said, I think somebody may have given them to her, you know, when she was <laughs> retiring and stuff. But no, we almost had a good story there. But right. we did have the we did have the good cake. No, no. uh no no retirement, but uh, thanks for all the birthday wishes and stuff like that. And thanks to the folks at the Jackson Grill, which is one of my very favorite restaurants. We had a very nice meal last night. All right, let us get started. And, and I admit this first segment, I want to vent and I want to give you an opportunity to vent because the sin of this is there's nothing that we can do about it. And there's still a lot of people who don't understand how absolutely, what's the word I'm looking for, two words, screwed over Milwaukee taxpayers were about 16 years ago. We have a, a, a guy who just transferred to Milwaukee. I was talking to him this morning, Jay, and he was saying, what, what are one of the things that you remember most about you know, the, the show? And I said, well, you know, one of the things would be when we were discussing the Milwaukee County pension scandal going back to like 2002. 
And and I know many of you might have been listening at the time and might be familiar with that. Many of you might be new to the show or new to the area, and you hear us referring to the pension scandal, but it's like, what what is this thing? Well, what happened was, 2002-2003, the county executive in Milwaukee County and his close advisors and members of the Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors got together and they came up with this plan to revise the Milwaukee County pension system. And they came up with this thing called a backdrop program. And we being the taxpayers and the county supervisors, people said, okay, this is, this is going to cost little or nothing. Don't worry, nothing to see here. And what this did, what the backdrop proposal did, is it paid bonuses to county workers who agreed to work past their retirement date. They'd pay them bonuses in exchange for taking the bonuses. Retirees would see a small reduction in their monthly checks. That's the way it was, that's the way it was pitched. You know, you'll get you know, you'll, you'll get some money up front, but then it'll actually be revenue neutral because, you know, your, your pensions will go down slightly. On top of that, they threw in this kicker that said that if you had been hired by the county before 1982, they would give you a 25% boost in your pension benefits. 25% boost. And again, the, the pitch was this is revenue neutral. It's not going to cost anything. Well, for whatever reasons, you will never, by the way, convince me that some people didn't know exactly what was going on. Now that way, after this all, after this all hit the fan, the argument was, well, you know, we were deceived and, and people didn't know. You will never, ever convince me that at least some of the architects didn't know exactly what was going on here. But what has happened is because of the, this backdrop payment, the idea that you get this upfront payment, What's happened is Milwaukee County has been, well, kind of teetering on the edge of of bankruptcy. Uh, The latest story is former Milwaukee County Sheriff Richard Schmidt. He just retired. He is going to be collecting a lump sum check north of $1 million. All right. In addition to that, he is going to be collecting a pension of north of $75,000 a year. And, of course, he's not the only one. I think the estimates are so far that there's been about uh, 12, 12 Milwaukee County retirees so far that have received a backdrop payment. This is the lump sum payment north of $1 million, in addition to an incredibly generous pension. And what's happened is these liabilities have just absolutely crippled Milwaukee. One of the things that you've seen is a lot of the payments have gone to people that are in the DA's office. And they've been in the DA's office since they got out of law school in the 70s and early 80s. Uh, they make decent money. You know, after a number of years, they're making 120 grand a year. And so after they decide to retire, they're eligible for this huge payout, the backdrop, the lump sum. And they're still able to collect sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars in regular annual pension payments, and it's something that has absolutely crippled Milwaukee County financially. Now, look, I appreciate 
that people, government workers, I understand the idea that, you know, you, you signed up, especially back in the day, you signed up, you deserve a pension. That was always what the promise was. You work for the government, you'll be able to retire at a certain point in time, and you'll be able to walk away with a decent pension. I don't know. I would argue sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year. That's a pretty darn decent pension that goes along with your Social Security and all those different types of things and whatever else you might do. I don't have a problem with that. I have a huge problem with the idea that on top of your pension, you can also walk away with a check that pays you over a million dollars. Now, I understand that this is a little bit of venting because the law says that once a benefit is given to a particular person, a pensioner, or somebody eligible for a pension, you can't take it away. So that's the problem we're in. You can cut it out for new employees, and they have. But right now, Milwaukee County, for the next couple decades, is still going to be saddled with this huge amount of backdrop payments, especially as higher-paid employees who were particularly hired before 1982 decide that they're going to retire. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I don't fault Richard Schmidt for taking the money. If somebody said, Jeff, here's a check for a million dollars on top of your pension, we're going to pay you a pension of $75,000 a year, who's going to turn down a million dollars? I don't fault Schmidt. I don't fault the people in the DA's office, several of whom I knew and worked with in another life, for taking these obscene amounts of money. But you know what? Going on 20 years after this thing was done, it still stinks to high heaven. It is an insult to people everywhere. And candidly, anybody that was involved in local government back at this time should be absolutely embarrassed that they were a part of this. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're on the line, please hold on. We discuss in a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. A couple people texting saying, how many people collected this backdrop and how many are still going to? Well, here's the scary numbers. As of the end of 2016, two years ago, 2,200 state of county employees, get this, had collected $294 million in backdrops. The county estimates that as of then, as, as of two years ago, there were still over 1,100 employees still eligible for the backdrop. They expected maybe another $100 million in payouts. In other words, the total bill for this fiasco $400 million just given to county employees. And again, I want to be real clear here. I, again, if somebody, I don't criticize, I don't criticize the people in the DA's office. And like I say, th- they've had a disproportionate number of people that have gotten this money. If somebody says, Jeff, here's a check for $1.3 million. And by the way, we're going to continue to give you pension payments as well. I, and of course, you're going to take it. I, I understand that. But if you want to know why Milwaukee County can't afford to I don't know, build the safety building, replace the safety building, can't afford to upkeep the parks, struggles with these things, it's all because of what happened years and years ago. It is a devastating thing, and it shows, I guess this is the big point, that elections have consequences. And when you elect people who are either crooks or who are incompetent, whether it's malfeasance or misfeasance, this is the type of thing you get. 
414-799-1620. Let's talk to um, Jim in Hales Corners. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Jim. I actually know some county employees that were in this particular uh, um, um, situation, and uh, they're good people. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's it's uh, what it points out to me is that we need more checks and balances yep. before we get sucked into something like this. We, if if it's got this major consequence, yep, we need better checks and balances that check on these bozos before they suck us into something for decades and decades. Well, right, exactly. And that, you see, Jim, and that is exactly the the larger point of this. The media was asleep, no coverage, no analysis of this at all. And again, the, the story that the, the county executive's office came out with is, well, we didn't understand this. We were misled by this. Now, again, I'm skeptical of that. I am. The county supervisor said, well, we didn't understand this. You know, we thought we were misled by that I'm skeptical of it but yeah this is something it is the unintended consequences when you do something that they say oh it's minor it's revenue neutral and it's crippled Milwaukee County for the last two decades and it's probably going to continue to financially cripple the people who live there for at least another 10 years it's unbelievable it, it is now thanks for and again I, I, I always I want to repeat this because I don't fault the I don't fault the employees for taking it. I fault the people who were on the board of supervisors. I fault the people who were in the Tom Amon administration who cooked this idea up and either didn't understand it or knowingly and intentionally chose to ignore the consequences. But but it does show, to Jim's point, this is this whole idea of transparency because government does this stuff. Oh, we think this is revenue neutral. Nobody in the media is looking at this type of thing until after it's done, and then it's done. And again, you're talking decades of economic havoc. 414-799-1620. Kasha in New Berlin, you're on WTMJ. Hi, I have more of a question to you. You had made a comment before the break that this could not be changed because it had been implemented and it would have been against the law. Right. To, to the to the people who were the beneficiaries of it, you could ch- you could change it for new employees. But yes, yeah. And and that is what a state law, a federal law. No, it's a federal law. It's a federal pension law, and it, it says and and if you think about it, it does kind of make sense. It says that once you have. Once you've been given a pension benefit, you as a, as an employee, that benefit can't subsequently be taken away moving forward. Um, the, the idea being, well, you know, the, the company promises you this sort of thing, and then they decide 20 years later that they're not going to pay you what they promised you. That That's why that's the whole purpose behind it. Um, so it's well intended. But, yeah, that as soon as they pass this thing, all these employees, thousands and thousands, were immediately vested in this, you know, in this thing where they're going to walk away. At least some of them, twelve of them, with more than a million dollars in cash. And there was no way to change that. There, not, not as to the people. Once they pass this, what's the legal term? Vested. Once this term, once they pass this, this benefit vested in all the people that were eligible. Now, you know, they subsequently, once the whistle got blown on this, they changed it so that new employees aren't eligible for it. But no, all these people that were in the system, they can collect or they will continue to collect as they retire. It's so wonderful. We've, we've paid for this for decades. How many more decades is this going to continue? Well, at probably at least another 10. Like I say, the most recent numbers that I have is that as of two years ago, there were still over 1,100 people that were eligible to retire 
um, that were still that were covered under this, that were employed at the time and would be eligible for the backdrop. So there's obviously fewer because we're paying out more. But but yeah, it's probably at least another ten years would be my guess. Wow. <laughs> Thanks for the call. Thank, well, yeah. thank you for the clarification. Yeah, yeah, wow. Now, I, I also want to be clear that for this backdrop, not every not every one of those 3,000 employees walks away with over a million dollars because it's based on your, your salary. So I think the average lump sum payment – this is the average is like 135 grand or 130 grand somewhere in in that area the the 12 or the 15 or the 16 who walk away with more than a million dollars in cash they're all people who again were were the high earners and had been there forever but yeah but it's still it's a 130 grand i would argue is is a lot of money and please understand i'm not criticizing people's eligibility for pensions i have no problem you know if somebody who worked for the county for 30 years you know you retire and you get a pension of 60 or 70 or 80 grand okay i I don't have an issue with that it's the idea that on top of that we're going to give you a check for one million dollars that's what is just obscene and it's something that is continuing and will continue to cripple milwaukee county financially for both the near and the long term it shows why elections matter, and it shows why if you have either corrupt or incompetent people that you elect to office, this is what can happen. This is Jeff Wagner. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. A couple people texting me after a conversation about the, the pension scandal and the backdrop. Said, well, Jeff, I, you know, you said that you know the, the pension you know, the pension benefit can't be changed for the current employees. But, well, how did they change it in the first place? I guess to be precise is a benefit, once it is given and it vests, it can't be taken away. So let's say you have a pension, all right, and your employer decides that the employer is going to sweeten it. They're going to add things to it. Once they add things to it, they can't go back to the way it originally was. So you can't go backwards. They can change it to make it better. But once they do that, once they make it better, okay, that's what you're the employer is stuck with. So if that clears it up, a number of interesting um, responses. Like I say, I, I tweeted out the uh, New York Times story about Dick Garrett and number of people. You know, he's kind of an institution at the Bradley Center. And if you if you if you've gone to games at the Bradley Center or this year at Pfizer Forum, you 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 would have seen him. And one of our texters says, "Hey, I found an old Dick Garrett basketball card. I brought it to him one day and asked him for an autograph. He just chuckled and signed it. So yeah, it's just th- this is one of the really 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 good things of of this magical buck season it's that milwaukee's getting a lot of attention and that whole area the deer district is getting a lot of attention and the team is getting a lot of attention and people on the periphery of the team are getting a lot of attention that's great okay i've been waiting all day to discuss this with you because i will tell you up front i don't see what the government is supposed to is supposed to do about this and i don't have a problem with what the government is doing when you apply for a job, grew like when you came to work here for, for Good Karma, one of the things that they are required to ask you for is identification. And I remember when, when this company, when we went through the sale, when Scripps sold us to Good Karma, we all had to bring in documentation. I had to bring in a Social Security card or a passport or something. You had to you had to provide information to the employer. You had to identify yourself, even though I've been working here for years. And what happens is, 
when when I get paid, you know, twice a month, what happens is I pay Social Security taxes. And that would be the company on my behalf pays Social Security tax. And the company sends off money to the Social Security Administration. And the Social Security Administration credits, quote-unquote, credits my account. So when I decide to finally try to apply for and collect Social Security, they'll have a record of how much was paid on my behalf, right? Every year you get those notices from the Social Security Administration saying, hey, if you retire at this age, this is how much you're going to get a month. Well, that's all based on the information that the employers are provided. My name, my date of birth, and my Social Security number. Well, what happens is, for a number of people who are working in this country illegally, they're in this country illegally working, what happens is they will provide documentation to the employers, and their documentation turns out to be false or incorrect or whatever. So the let's say the Social Security number that they have given doesn't match their name. So every, you know, two weeks, the Social Security Administration gets a check from Good Karma, and it's supposed to be credited to Jeff Wagner's account, but the the Social Security number that I have doesn't match my name. So Social Security doesn't know what to do with that. What they have started doing, now they did this up until 2012, and then they stopped, and now they are doing it again. What's happened is the Social Security Administration over the past couple months has started mailing what they call no-match letters to more than 570,000 employers. A no-match letter notifies them that, hey, we have, you know, you have these various people who are employed by you. You should know that their social security numbers or their employer, their identifying number, it doesn't match their name. There's no match. Now, the letters don't say you're in violation of the law. The letters don't say you have to fire these people. But the letters effectively put the employers on notice that there's something up. Now, it might be that it's just an inadvertent, you know, it's an inadvertent mistake. When I showed my Social Security card to, you know, the, the people at Good Karma, somebody transposed the number. So there's supposed to be a five, and instead there's a seven. Could be just this innocent mistake that, you know, it's easy to clear up. On the other hand, in the majority of cases, it's probably going to be putting the employer on notice that there's something fishy about the employer employee. And so the big story now is you have a number of these employers in a number of these industries who are starting to, you know, freak out uh, about this. Hey, the Social Security Administration is notifying employers that there might be problems with, you know, (laughs) thousands and thousands of their employees. Our number is 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. As I said at the start of the segment, I don't have a problem with the Social Security Administration noticing employers that they have got issues. I, I, I just, I don't. What are they supposed to do? I think it is fair to put employers on notice that, hey, you know, the government is aware that there is a problem with employees' paperwork. If you aren't going to send out these notices, why go to all the trouble of making all of us 
I don't know, prove that this is our number and this is our name. You know, I think the government has an obligation or should have an obligation to notify employers that they've got a problem. And if that means that, well, they have to take a hard look at some of the people they're employing, well, I think maybe they have to take a hard look at some of the people they are employing. This effectively puts employers that they're on notice that there might be problems with the paperwork of some of the people that they're working. Should the government not be telling employers this? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And like I say, right now, these no-match letters don't say, hey, you could be prosecuted, we're going to raid you or whatever. They simply say, yeah, you've got these employees and there's a problem with their paperwork. Is that wrong? 414-799-1620. My answer is heck no. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us, Jeremy and Racine. Hi, Jeremy. You're on WTMJ. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I sure. think it's a fantastic thing that the Social Security Administration is saying on top of it. I can only hope they get better at doing it. Uh, the sooner they can catch these things, the better. I myself has been compromised. Uh, I've had a letter from the IRS advising me that my uh, identity has been compromised and to take appropriate steps. And my own son, his uh, identity has been stolen, and people have been trying to um, claim him on their taxes and things mm-hmm. like that. So we had to go through the hoops and that. And, and the other question I have is how long it takes them to find out that these people are not who they say they are. Where does the money go through the contributions that they've been doing up to that point. Well, they don't, my understanding is they you, you don't get credit for it. So if, um, if you know, I mean, the way it works is, you know, it's like Social Security. It's not like a bank account. The, the money that we pay into Social Security goes and is used to pay for the amount that's being paid out to other people who are collecting. And then, you know, theoretically, we'll collect later on when we go to it. So my understanding is when the numbers don't match, you don't get credit for it. So the the money, you, you, let's say I'm working illegally and I, I've given my employer a bogus Social Security number, that money, it just goes into Social Security and it's going to go out to pay somebody else's benefits. I'm not getting credit for it. Which is okay. why, if you're if you're legitimately, in my example, if your numbers are just transposed, you want to get that corrected right away because you're not getting credit for the money that's going in. Absolutely, and I wonder what kind of mess that would be uh, come tax time when you're filing all that paperwork, and next thing you know, the IRS. I don't know how well they communicate with the Social Security office in regards right. to those special matters too. Well, so. no, no, right. Thanks, but of course, the the big deal is for people if there's legitimate error. The big deal is when you go to collect Social Security, if you find out that, hey, you know, I, I've been paying in over or my employer on my behalf has been paying in and, and I should have, you know, this much in credit and be eligible. And you find out that, uh, no, you haven't been getting credit, that that could, in fact, be a big deal. But but let's be honest. I mean, what what's really going on here is this is a way of notifying the employers that you've got a problem here. You know, you you are working You've got people who are working for you whose paperwork is not up to snuff, shall we say. Linda in Milwaukee. Linda, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. How are you? I am well, thank you. Well, thank you. You are a woman of discerning taste. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my question is, why is the onus on the employer to provide this information? I work in a payroll department, and I had to give up my firstborn to even find out who the actual employee was, once I found that information out, the answer was to send the employee 
to the Social Security Administration, and how does that clear the company? They don't even ask for proof that you've contacted them or told the employee to go to the Social Security Administration office. Right, yeah. There's a lot of red tape and jumping through a lot of hoops to get to that point, and I don't know why the onus is on the employer to do that. Well, okay, what do you, let me ask you then, what do you think, you're right, this letter, because it's coming from the Social Security Administration, doesn't say to the employer's, you have to fire the employee or you know or you're going to be subject to penalties for hiring people who are illegal it just notifies people there's a problem what do you think let's take the situation where you do have the problem that the number doesn't match what do you think should happen well i'm not certain i mean you can locate the employee but again i had to provide my social security Mm -hmm. number my home address yep my thumbprint, my firstborn, <laughs> even find out who that employee was. Yeah, right. And, the, and we did contact the employee and say, go to the, admin, the Social Security Administration office. But, oh, oh, you're saying as the payroll administrator, you had to go through all this hoops to see, okay, who is it that you're talking about? You know, who, which, is the, which employee of ours has the problem? That's what you're saying. Exactly. Got it. Yeah, and I guess I I don't know. It's, I don't know enough about the mechanics as to how this this operates, as to how much information is given to the employers. Although, I mean, my my understanding is the no match letters, the no match letters um, do indicate that the names of the employees for which there's there's no match that, that's there. I, I guess I think Social Security is doing the right thing now. The, the here, here, I mean, the objection is, let's, let's just kind of be honest here. The concern is, oh, well, this is targeting, you know, people who might be in the country illegally, and this might hurt a couple of these industries that depend heavily on labor provided by people who are in this country illegally, and we should just look the other way. I have said for years on this program that I, I think the whole immigration, the current immigration system is an absolute and total mess. At the same time, and I think it, it's a very, very legitimate thing to say, you know, maybe we need to figure out a way to allow people who have been in this country and are working and aren't provide, aren't causing problems and are doing jobs that maybe other people like Americans don't want to do. All right, maybe we should find a way to allow them some form of not citizenship, but some form of permanent residence. I, I've never disagreed with that, and I'm very disappointed that both Republicans and Democrats in Congress couldn't get together on this particular issue to come up with some common sense immigration reform. But having said all that, I mean, as the long as the law is, you're not supposed to be in this country, and you're not supposed to be, you know, working if you're not legally in this country, I don't see how Social Security can do anything other than notify employers, hey, this is the law, and by the way, you've got a problem, and you've got these 10 different employees, and their, their numbers don't match up with our records, so, all right, just just be on notice. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's 1255. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. All right. There is a local issue brewing in Wauwatosa. To have lights or not to have lights? I think lights are the way to go. Gru, who's producing the show today and always. This will be controversial. Here's the story. Wauwatosa East High School. 
has this athletic feel. Now, Wauwatosa East, it's kind of around 76th Street in, in Wauwatosa towards kind of like the north side of Wauwatosa. It, it is in a heavily residential area, as many of our older high schools are. There is a proposal that's out there. What the folks, the school board, what they're looking at doing is they want to renovate the current athletic field. They want to pull up the grass and they want to put in artificial turf. And then they want to expand the parking lot and they want to build a a secondary field. All right, all that stuff is going on. In addition to that, they want to put in lights at the new athletic field doesn't have lights right now the idea being hey you could have football games in the evening etc etc we could get more use out of it this is the aspect of the plan that's become very very controversial because a number of the neighbors are out there saying wait a second we you know this is a residential area and if you're going to put in lights First of all, that means that we're going to have lights that are going to be shining on the field and they're going to change the quality of our life in our neighborhoods. That's number one. Number two, if you're going to have lights, that means that you're going to be having games that are in the evening. And instead of having games in the afternoon, well, when they're over by six or seven o'clock at night or whatever, now we're going to have to put up with, you know, the traffic and people leaving at 10 o'clock at night or after the game ends. Huge controversy going on in Wauwatosa about a number of aspects of the plan, but the most controversial aspect is the lights. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Do the neighbors have a point? Now, I bring this up because I live for, I don't know, I lived for 30 years in Whitefish Bay, and I lived within a couple blocks of the high school where they had lights. Now, I wasn't in the next block from the high school, but I was a couple blocks away, the lights never bothered us. You could tell when there was a football game going because a lot of the on-street parking got taken up, but the lights themselves never bothered us. And I guess it only happened a few times a year. And I thought, okay, it's only happening a couple times a year when they've got the junior varsity basketball football games and the varsity football games and maybe an occasional soccer game. I never found it to be that much of a nuisance. 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My guess is maybe you live in an area, I don't know, where where you're close to high schools. I grew up in Glendale. My parents lived three and a half blocks, two and a half blocks away from Nicolay High School. They, they had lights. You know, they, they would play football at night. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. It will, and I'm sure it will, for at least a few nights a year, it will perhaps inconvenience the people that live in that immediate area. Is that a legitimate reason to say, no, we're not going to have them? 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I will be honest with you. I think this is one of these deals where, again, I appreciate that people don't want the character of their neighborhood to change dramatically. But you know what? You live by a high school. I think you have to anticipate that there are perhaps going to be changes. And I think as a general rule, as long as you reach an understanding with the high school that the lights aren't going to be on every night, every game, I think that – 
I think that it's something that people should consider. 414-799-1620. Okay, we're going to have a heated discussion about this. I guarantee you, if you're on the line, please hold on. We're back with your calls in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Let's start with Sue in West Bend. Sue, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi, Sue. So I guess my question is, if this, this all had to be approved by the city council or the village board or along in conjunction with the school board, why would they not want to use the facilities to the best of their ability? Why would they spend all this money to renovate this and then have it well, then, just so I'm clear. Well, just so I'm clear, this is a this is it's at the proposal stage now. This is this is what the the planners and this is what the school wants to do. So they're still trying to get permission to do that. Um, I, I guess the the question is, do you? I mean, do you think you need lights at a at a at a football stadium nowadays or at, a, at an athletic field? I think you do. I think that if you want to gain people to come and be able to use the facilities to the best of mm-hmm. the area's ability. I mean, I, I mean, we live in West Bend. We don't live that far from the combined high school. Right. They have a huge field, lots of lights. I mean, yes, um, probably four times a year we hear cheering, but the lights don't bother us. Yeah, I guess, I mean, that, I will tell you, I mean, that was my reaction living close to the school in Whitefish Bay. I, it was that, you know, a, a couple times a year on, the, on Friday nights where you had the football games, you would ha- you would hear cheering and you'd have people that would park a few blocks away. I, and you could you see the lights? Yes. Now, I wasn't close enough that they were, you know, boring in my bedroom window, but this was, it wasn't something that happened a lot. A handful of soccer games, a handful of, you know, football games, it, it wasn't something that impacted the quality of life one way or the other and let's be realistic football is mostly played during a time when you know night games are done by eight thirty, nine o'clock i mean they don't start that late right. because it's dark earlier right. well i mean i guess I, and, and this is i mean i know that there's a number of people that that live close to parks for example in milwaukee county you know in the parks have baseball diamonds that have lights on them and things like that you've got the same issue you've got cars that come in there's almost always curfews now i mean if you were talking about hey these lights are going to be burning till three o'clock in the morning you know three days a week well i i I get at that point in time but all right thanks for the call i appreciate it 414-799-1620 all right let's go to ron in wauwatosa ron you're on wtmj Hey, Jeff, let's just clear up a few things. Uh, we have Hart Park, which is only four blocks from the high school, and that's where Toza East plays its football games. They're not going to be playing football games here. It's just going to be a practice facility, and it was supposed to be made just for the kids of our school to practice and to maybe play some junior varsity games and some freshman games. It's not made for our varsity games. And this area that's right in the middle of a residential Well, wait, I'm looking at the story here. The proposal calls for replacing the existing grass field with an artificial surface would be lined for soccer, lacrosse, and football, and also marching band purposes. Well, that's the other problem, Jeff, is that the school boards lied to us about this. Uh, we didn't find out about this, the neighbors in our immediate area, until April 28th. Yeah, it does. And let me stop you there. I, it does sound like they've done a crummy job of communicating very, with the neighborhood. Right. Absolutely horrible job. They're trying to sneak this by because they know that this is a national historic neighborhood, and they're trying to get these 70-foot lights, which are 30 yards from my house, to shine on this light on this third. And they're planning on using this seven days a week, 
9 to 9 o'clock. They originally said 10 to 10. Now, you can't tell me that the high school, all their athletic things are going to be that used. It's going to be used for club teams and toes of kickers, and that's what the people in the residential area around us are upset about, is that these lights are going to be on. They're going, well, we're going to be on timers, so they'll go off at 9 o'clock at night. But they're saying seven days a week. There's other alternatives in Wauwatosa, which Toza Active, which is a, a, society, a group of people that was county, city, and school board people that looked at other areas where they could put practice soccer fields. Hart Park has got a huge area right next to the gorgeous stadium that we have in Hart Park that they could put two fields, maybe even three fields, lighted. That would not interfere with any residents. Well, what, what do you think? Let me ask you this, Ron. What do you think... What do you think the lights are, are going to do? And let's let's put aside the the seven days a week and, and burning till ten o'clock at night. But what what do you? How do you think the lights are going to change the character of your neighborhood? I think it's going to ruin our neighborhood because you're going to have lights shining, and they've got lights up at Longfellow School that have an artificial field. And we went up there and looked at it, the neighbors, and it shines well past the field. Um, there's one house that's ten feet from the field. I mean, that poor lady, and she's got a house that's, you know, it's an antique house that, again, is in a historic neighborhood. It's 10 feet from the field. My house is 30 yards away from the field. But I think the lights are going to just ruin the whole atmosphere of the neighborhood, and it's going to also scoot out on into the, uh, onto the uh, 76th Street. I think the other two biggest problem is traffic. And parking. Mm-hmm. These are just side streets. There's no place that they can't expand the parking anymore because they're going to gain nine spots of parking, right. which is just ridiculous to spend almost $4 million to do this with the lights and everything else. What is um, the – so would your solution be to do nothing or to revamp no. the field but just don't put in the lights? Is the lights the biggest issue? The lights are the biggest issue. I mean, we can understand it's a rough field. They have some foundations there that have to be replaced. And it's much cheaper long-term to put in the turf and have the kids a nice, safe area place to, to practice. But it's not meant for varsity games. It's supposed to be meant for just JV and freshman games that are usually after school. They're not at night. Uh, we've got supposedly what's voted in as one of the best soccer fields in southeastern Wisconsin up at Whitman Junior High School mm-hmm. that was made just for soccer. That has lights, and it's just gorgeous. So they're putting in lights here that we don't even need the lights. If they want to really do this well, they should just do the turf, have a nice practice facility for the kids, for the band, for club uh, soccer, for club soccer. I mean, for soccer for the kids, and for any other, and for the cross. But if they really want to have another facility mm-hmm. to use for games, put the lights and a facility down at Hart Park. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. And they've, they've got them down at Hart Park. Of course, that's that's on the edge of one of those areas as well. 414-799-1620. Ron is one of the guys that lives there. He says, look, I think this is going to completely and totally change the character of the neighborhood, and I don't want these lights shining in. All right, 414-799-1620. Does he have a point? Let's talk to Alan in Burlington. Alan, you're in WTMJ. Hey, good uh, afternoon. Hi, Hi Alan. Hi, uh, so I know as human beings, none of us really like change. So if you live there, I understand where they're coming from. But I live out in Burlington, and a lot of the local city high schools and middle schools utilize a county park that they have an agreement with uh, that has tremendous lights very close to where I live. And it brings in a tremendous amount of revenue, believe it or not, the area, because over time you can start to do 
clubs and activities and clinics and things like that there for summertime for kids, and there's always things going on there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a really big part of our, the economic uh, boom for sports and for youth to get involved in things before they get to the high school years. And I, I'm a firm believer more lights is less crime. I mean, if you've got the overglow of lights leading over the streets, pull your blinds because, you know, so neighborhoods that have no lights that are dark, those are the ones that mm-hmm. make me a little more nervous as far as more thefts and, and, you know, more of the criminal element, you know, looking for those areas. I see nothing wrong with it at all. Well, I guess, you know, what, what, thanks, Nicole. What I, what I find interesting about this topic, and again, this is coming from the perspective of somebody who lived by a high school that, that, had, that had lights that were, were utilized. I always thought, I, candidly, I always thought rather than being something that was a negative and a detriment, I always thought of it kind of as a positive in the way that, you know, it, it's something that attracted people to to the community. And, and again, you know, you, you go through Milwaukee and you go through Mequon and you go through lots of parts in Wauwatosa and you are going to find parks that are located in the middle of residential areas and they've got lights on them and they're used for baseball games and things like that and i guess i i've never really felt that it's the lights that oh my gosh th- these things aren't going to be burning at three o'clock in in the morning now i do understand ron's point in particular about hey we're going to have traffic it means that there's going to be more people that are going to be parking on the streets and things like that and i think that is a legitimate concern to an extent because the question becomes if you live in an area around a, a high school, is it reasonable to expect that they're not going to be making changes, that it's it's always going to be the way it was? 414-799-1620. Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. I'm going to have to side with the school for two reasons. One is that I used to live near a school, and, and I didn't think it was a problem. If anything, it was sort of an ambient or sort of a kind of illuminated the community as you kind of said earlier and then if football lights are your biggest problem you are in a pretty good neighborhood um (laughs) well you're saying this is a first world problem one way or the other huh well yeah i mean i i think that that if if you um are spending time about a football field and lights and, and things like that you, you know, there could be a lot worse problems you could be dealing with. Well, thank, I guess, but look, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I don't want to downplay it. Even though I, I think that this is kind of the progress that is inevitable, I appreciate the concern. I mean, if you're living, you're living across the street from a school and all of a sudden you've got lights on the athletic field, I, I understand how it's going to bring more people that are going to be there. It's going to get heavier use. You've got the soccer games that are going to be played and things like that. I understand why some residents might say, okay, well, I just don't want it. I don't want the character of the neighborhood to change. I guess I just think a lot of times that that's overly dramatized, and that comes from the perspective of somebody who did live a couple blocks away, not not 30 yards, but did live at least a couple blocks away from a school that ended up having lights. Uh, I I guess the one thing I think we can all agree on is it does sound like it's uncontroverted. The school board dropped the ball on this, and instead of working with neighbors and, and, and saying, look, this is what we want to do and this is why we want to do it, they kind of sprung it on them, and, and for that, that's their bad. Ultimately, big picture, what do they decide to do? Well, stay tuned. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Okay, this we would lump this into chickens coming home to roost. 
You will remember all the controversy a month or so ago when the district attorney, the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, that's like the district attorney for Cook County, which is Chicago, made the decision to essentially, well, slap Jesse Smollett, he was the Empire actor who filed all the false claims, you know, claiming that he had been, you know, beaten up and attacked because uh, by by people wearing Make America Great hats again. Everybody remembers the story. It turned out to be a complete and total hoax. And the district attorney's office decided they're going to just walk away and not issue charges. Well, I mean, here's the deal. There's now you have all these other people who have been charged with doing similar things, not like faking a a racially motivated beating, but they've been charged with filing false police reports. And now they're all saying, hey, wait a second. You know, why are we being prosecuted for felonies? And why are you talking about trying to take away our livelihood when you have this well-known actor and you decide that you're going to just dismiss their case? There's this one woman who, again, you know, she was um, charged with filing a false uh, police report regarding funds that went missing from her bank account. So she lied. She lied that claiming somebody had stolen money out of her bank account. They investigated. They exposed her as lying. Now they've charged her with a felony for this. She's got an attorney and the judge is apparently saying to the DA's office, yeah, how come you've got this woman who's accused of lying, you want to put her in jail, you want to saddle her with a felony, and you gave away the Jussie Smollett case. That is a very, very fair question, and it's something that the Cook County State's Attorney's Office is going to have to be dealing with for quite a while. Why? Because they decided for whatever reason to give this famous actor the break of a lifetime. Happy Friday, 43 degrees outside. It doesn't look like it's going to be a very good weekend. Spring will get here at some point in time, I guarantee it. All right, it's called the adversity score. Let us be honest. This is, at least in my opinion, it is a way to try to incorporate race in college admissions, even though you're not supposed to be able to legally do that. Here's the story. Um, many college students are required to take what is called the SAT. You know, there's the SAT and the ACT tests, and these are college admission tests, and they measure your skills. You get a score in math. You get a skill like there, there's a verbal score. There's a math score. Did you, Gru, did you, do you take the ACT or the SAT? I took the ACT. Are you good at taking those kind of tests? Uh, I scored an average score. I, I, I didn't feel any pressure, I guess. Okay, no, but I mean, it, it, okay. See, some people, I... I am I'm good at at these tests, um, and it's, it's it doesn't necessarily translate in any sort of way into real life sort of thing. But I I was I was always good at those. I remember to get into law school, you had to take the LSAT, which is the law school version of that. And I um I, I did I did very well actually. I probably did better than you know proportionally with my college grades, just because. I, I take standardized tests well. Some people don't, and it doesn't mean that they're not really smart, and it doesn't matter of fact, I know people that did very, very well grade-wise, actually better than I did, that scored dramatically lower on some of these tests. It's just So I, I'm not sure that the SAT or the ACT is this great indicator to begin with, but it is an objective test. You know, they, they give you math problems to do. 
and then they give you choices, and you either get them right or wrong. They give you, you know, questions about, you know, language and grammar and things like that, and you either get them right or get them wrong. There, there's an objectivity to it. Well, these are used in deciding college admissions. The college board, this is the people that put together the SAT, they are now going to have something else that is going to go off to colleges. Now, the students taking the tests aren't going to know about this, but the colleges are. The college board plans to assign something called an adversity score to every student who takes the SAT. So what they're trying to do is, in golf, you've got a handicap. You know, not not... Jack Nicholas is a better golfer than almost everybody. So in order for Jack Nicholas to play golf against other people, there is a handicap. And maybe like my handicap is 18. So if I'm playing against somebody that's got a handicap of six, I'm going to get strokes. I'm going to get an advantage. That's kind of what this do. It's calculated using 15 factors, including the crime rate and poverty level from the student's high school and the student's neighborhood. So it's going to be looking, the idea is we want to have a more diverse student body. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to handicap the test scores based on the area where some kids are coming from, uh, the crime rate, the financial conditions, etc., etc. 15 different factors that are going to be drawn from public records like the U.S. Census, etc., um, about kids' backgrounds. And then we're going to put this on there. So the school might be able to say, okay, our, our, our limits are, you know, we're looking for people in the top 10% of, of the ACT with the top highest numbers there. But if you've got an adversity score of 90 and the way it works is everybody starts out with 50 and if you come from a better neighborhood your your adversity score is going to be lower if you come from a worse neighborhood your adversity score is going to be higher so this is a way of saying okay well we're going to kind of handicap the field and yes we have these people that are doing really well but you know what they come from a, a nice safe neighborhood and there's no crime in this particular area so we're going to all right we're going to essentially ding them and we're going to give a benefit to somebody who has a lower score but comes from a more challenging neighborhood. 414-799-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think this is horse hockey. Now, I, I understand that there is an interest in having diverse student backgrounds. And I think it is perfectly fair to say, okay, let's look at individual circumstances and deciding admission. But seriously, using the U.S. Census to automatically say, hey, you grew up in a good neighborhood, so or because it's a good neighborhood and it's an economically affluent neighborhood, you know, you're you're going to be less likely to get into school than somebody who did worse than you did, um, but they grew up in a poorer neighborhood. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, again, the, the courts have made it very clear that you're, you're not supposed to use race as, as a factor. I think this is, the really intention is, this is kind of a backdoor way uh, of trying to do that. More importantly, though, I just think it is fundamentally unfair. I have no problem with including, you know, a, a, a background. I mean, I think if you're looking at college admissions, 
You know, it, it should be a wide sort of thing that you use. You cast a wide net. Let's look at activities. You know, let's look at things. Let's look at volunteer work. Let's look at all this stuff to get a complete package. But to try to use an adversity score, give me a break. 414-799-1620. David in Mequon. David, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, you, you know what? It's just ridiculous. Um, you're basically saying, that, or I should say, in this case, we're we're saying to the students that live in, in areas of poverty that you know what, you're you're just not smart enough. So we're going to try to make it look like that. Essentially, we're going to skew the results. And and obviously, yes, there is factors with all that. But sure. to your point. Uh, you know, with other extracurricular activities and other things, there are plenty of kids around the country that are able to get past, you know, certain obstacles. And we have to say to ourselves, okay, in order to get past certain things in life, you know, not everybody's going to have it, you know, terrific. But, you know, to do this and to categorize people based on scores yep. rather than the actual individual is just that's just silly oh, oh yeah well l- i mean let's take examples of some of these area high schools you you do this and and my guess is let's take homestead high school you know in ozaki county where my right. guess is you know most of the kids that go there they, they come from what we would describe as safe neighborhoods there's i mean is there poverty in ozaki county yeah but it's not as pronounced as in other areas so every kid from homestead that's taking this test they are going to start out at a disadvantage because their diversity score is going to be dramatically lower than somebody from some you know other area how is that fair it, it isn't and if you just a, one other point you know, which i'll just sure. see what you say about it but you know, in Harvard right now, there is a, there is a lawsuit that's being pursued by Asian Americans right. that, you know, a good chunk of them have superior scores, but because there's so many of them, they're only going to accept, you know, X amount of Asian Americans because it's right. not diversified enough. And so they're actually bringing it to the courts, and I hope that they win because, it's again, it's penalizing somebody for being doing the right thing. Right. No, I, exactly. No, th- thanks for call. I mean, this is that's exactly what what this is is all about. Now, the adversity score, um, they, they say, well, this is steeped in all sorts of, of research. But what, what it's essentially saying is, you know, we're going to give advantages to people who, you know, grew up in certain types of neighborhoods. And like I say, I, I'm all in favor of diversity. And I, I think it's it's fair I think that you have to use certain predictors because what you're ultimately trying to do is you're trying to get, number one, a diverse class, but number two, you're trying to get kids who can end up doing the, the work. I just object to this because I think it is a way of discriminating against, unfairly discriminating against kids who are working their butts off um, from perhaps more affluent areas. We pick it up right there, 414-799-1620. It's called the adversity score, and more and more colleges are doing this. What's more is they're not going to tell you what your adversity score is. So you're you're not you're not going to know, mom and dad, why your kid got passed over for getting into a school if it was because of this. If you're on the line, please hold on. Back to take your calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Okay, here's a text which kind of leads into one of the points I want to make. Jeff, I'm conflicted on this issue. 
Obviously, getting straight A's and participating in extracurricular activities is a lot easier if you aren't the child of a single mother who's a crack addict and you have to work 20 hours per week to help support your family. There should be a way to take situations like this into account as long as the ACT or SAT scores suggest they can handle the workload. I don't disagree with that. But what this does is it assumes that everybody who, I don't know, perhaps goes to a certain high school in a certain area, it assumes that all of them, because it looks at the crime rate in the area and the poverty level, it assumes that all of those kids, well, are, are being raised by single mothers who are crack addicts and the kids have to work 20 hours. How how insulting is that? I mean, what about, okay, so so you're in a, a less desirable, okay, you're, you're in a more depressed economic area. Yes, and, and mom and dad are working, but mom and dad, you come from an two-party, two-family, two-parent household. You know, education is valued. You know, should we assume that that child automatically needs that advantage? No, I, I have no problem with looking at individual circumstances. That's why I think test scores in and of themselves are, are limited as an indicator. I'm just saying by trying to quantify this, saying, okay, we're going to give you an adversity score, and it's not going to be based on your individual characteristics. It's going to be based on census data. You know, where did you grow up? You know, what what are the economic conditions? What's the crime rate? How insulting is that? Seriously, 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Julie in Fox Point. Julie, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Sure. Hi. You know, I think it's it's ridiculous. And there's a handful of kids, no matter what race they are or where they come from, they live in Milwaukee. They choose to live in Milwaukee, probably. And because they don't want to send their kids to MPS schools, they can come to DSHA or Marquette. Mm -hmm. So if you're taking the census and you live in Milwaukee, which is high crime, and you're sending your kids to Marquette University, do they automatically get this adversity advantage i mean that's just not fair you know they're not even looking at the family background or how they did in school they're just like hey right it's different factors and and look and and i i appreciate that there are like like the 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 texture was making out i mean i appreciate that there are there are individual circumstances behind applications that I, I think should be taken into consideration. And, I mean, I, I think it's great if you have, and maybe even that there's some sort of subjective curve that's out there, if you have these kids that are, are succeeding, you know, in the face of all sorts of challenges. I, I'm i not opposed to that. I'm just saying trying to quantify it by, okay, th- this is this zip code is a high-crime zip code, so you get an extra 20 points on the adversity scale that's what I think is unfair. Right. And then these kids that do live in Milwaukee and, and are going to Marquette University, why would they automatically, yeah. they have a great education moving yeah. forward. Why do they get advantage over those that go to public schools if they live in Whitefish Bay or they live in Mequon? Well, that's it. I mean, thanks. I mean, see, and, and I guess that that's my point. I I'm not against looking at individual circumstances, but this is this sort of general thing. One of the other things, at least that scares me about this, is that the folks that run the college board, the SATs, they're they're not willing to disclose, you know, what what factors they're going to look into other than things like crime rate and the prov- the poverty levels and the crime rate from your high school and your neighborhood. And students won't even be told the scores, um, but colleges will see the numbers. All right, doesn't that give anybody pause here? 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Rebecca in West Bend. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. What do you think? I'm in favor of an adversity score. And I 
mostly because I think there is a disadvantage to those who grow up in impoverished neighborhoods. They do not get the same type of extracurriculars. If you grow up poor, you might have to take down a part-time or full-time job where you can't Mm -hmm. do extracurriculars. And so Mm -hmm. the unfairness is being impoverished in the first place. So having a little bit of an advantage when it comes to education I think is a good thing. But but how do you how do we generalize in, in that way because not everybody that goes to a particular high school for example not everybody has the same economic background not everybody has the same problems or advantages a, at home doesn't it make more sense to say, okay, we're, we're going to look at applications on a, an individual basis in considering kids than just trying to say that, okay, everybody that's going to a high school in this particular area, well, because the crime rate's not bad, because the, um, be, because the poverty rate's not bad, you have an advantage. I mean, is that fair to those kids? I think it is. Because well, those kids have more resources available. Mm-hmm. The worse the area you live in, and I grew up in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. I did not have computer classes growing up. And when we moved from Milwaukee to the suburbs, I was well behind my peers mm-hmm. because I was at a disadvantage due to the resources within the community. Mm-hmm. And well, what about the kid? Okay, what about the kid in the affluent area? Okay, not a high crime rate, not a high poverty level, whose dad is a drunk and whose mother is a drug addict and the parents are fighting and the kid gets beaten on a regular basis. I mean, is it fair to treat that kid essentially better than maybe the kid in the more economically depressed area who has, you know, dedicated two parents, admittedly, they're, they're not in the highest income level, both mom and dad are working, but, but they're there, it's the intact two-parent family. I guess my problem is, how do you generalize? Doesn't it make more sense to look at individual circumstances? I think it is good to look at individual circumstances, but on a paper application, the those that are impoverished are always going to be at a disadvantage because mm. they do not have the same resources. And the scenario you spoke of is one that's very familiar and close to home. Mm. My family moved out of the city, and my nieces were able to go to a school in a good community. Their parents weren't the most stable people, but because they had the resources available through the school, they were able to be in things like National Mm -hmm. Honor Society. They put in the hard work, Mm -hmm. but had they had the same circumstances in Milwaukee, they would not have the advantage to have those extracurriculars. Well, I guess, I mean, Rebecca, I I guess, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm kind of up against the clock, but I I guess in closing, my only question to you would be, if that is really the case, then that sounds like a pretty compelling indictment in this particular case of MPS. I mean, is, is that what we're saying, that you know you, you can't get a decent education at, at, at MPS and that there's not these different programs that are available? Now, look, and again, I, I understand there's lots of kids that come from challenging economic, from challenging personal situations. My only point is I think that happens in lots of different 
places as well. And if we assume that just because you live in a nice area that you don't have any adversity going on, I, I think that's, to me, this is just reverse discrimination. I guess that's the best way to put it. Um, a lot of schools are going to jump on board this. There's going to be lawsuits. I guess we'll see how it all plays out. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Well, good afternoon, Wisconsin. So glad to have you with us. It's the 2 o'clock hour of the Friday show. That means Pop Culture Corner, and we've got a fun one for this week coming up around 2.35. Uh, some other interesting things before that, though. PGA Championship is going on. Actually, if, if you're a professional golfer, this is one of the majors that you play in. The PGA has always been the last. Up until this year, it's always been the last of the four majors, the others being the Masters, the U.S. Open, the British Open, and the PGA, which has always been played in August. It's been at Whistling Straits, um, around the Kohler area for, I think, on two separate occasions. This year, they've decided to alter the calendar. They've moved it up, so the PGA is being played right now in May. This decision to move it up, actually, it kind of hurts Wisconsin's ability to get it again because, as anybody who has tried to be outside this spring knows, sometimes spring and summer is a long time coming if you live in southeastern or south-central Wisconsin. So bottom line of this is, I don't know if you're ever going to be able to stage another PGA in Wisconsin if you're going to have it in May because you might have to be confronting 44-degree temperatures and rain for day after day after day. But they're playing it in New York. Um, Interestingly enough, Tiger Woods, who surprised a lot of people, myself included, by winning the Masters, um, he's – He's playing in this, and it's going to be an interesting afternoon because he's on the fifth hole. Right now, he, he's right at the cut line. What they do is after the first two days, the top 70 golfers and ties advance to play on the weekend. Right now, the, the cut is three over par, and that's right where Woods is. Now, the cut can the, the cut line can move a little bit. It can go to... It can go up to plus four, depending on how the players that are still on the course do. It could theoretically go down. But Tiger Woods right now, um, he's one over par for the day, and he's uh, three over par for the round, which right now, if the round stopped now, he would make the next two days. But um, he's not he's not tearing up this course like he you know did at the Masters. But Tiger Woods is incredibly good for golf. There's no question about that. And candidly, the interest in the PGA I think over the weekend goes up if Woods is able to make the cut. All right, I know it is early, but I want to take your temperature. A couple years ago, we had a huge debate in this community and in this state over whether or not the public should step up and kick in $250 million towards the building of Pfizer Forum. Now, I have been doing this show long enough to remember the debate about Miller Park, and as I kid around to lots of people, I still I still have kind of the psychic scars from the battle with Miller Park because, Gru, who's producing the show, I cannot tell you how, how heated – that was. And Miller Park almost did not happen. I mean, were it not for legislators changing their votes in the middle of the night and things like that, Miller Park would not have gotten done. 
County Stadium would not have been suitable. The Brewers would have moved. So all this stuff about going to the World Series, that would not have happened. But there's still a lot of people, I know, that think that we should not, we being the taxpayer, should not have stepped up and not have built Miller Park. Now, the difference with Pfizer Forum is that it really was a public-private partnership. You had the taxpayers that kicked in $250 million, and you had the Bucks owners who paid for the rest. And in addition to that, you have all the other things that have developed around, you know, the Pfizer Forum, the Deer District, all these different types of things. So you see all this excitement. At the same time, and I was talking to somebody at dinner the other night, we were kind of discussing this, and I said, man, it's just great to see all this national attention and all these things. And the person I was having dinner with said to me, said, yeah, I know what you're saying, but it still sticks in my craw that you have owners, in this case the owner, the principal owners of, of the Bucks, who are just rich beyond dreams of avarice, whose value of the franchise has increased dramatically since they bought it. And he says it still kind of frosts me that, you know, we, we being the taxpayers, had to shell out, you know, $250 million to help build this facility, even though it's been a success should the taxpayers have had to do it. One of the things that I've always said is going to be the indicator as to whether this was a good deal or not was – not just do people come to the new facility and see the games. It's is this going to be an economic shot in the arm to the surrounding area? And will that shot in the arm come by bringing new people in or will it come at the expense of existing businesses? So far, and again, understand it's early, there's been no question, there's no question in my mind that that, that whole area has taken off, that you have all sorts of new people who are coming down to the area. The preliminary reports from some of the existing bars and restaurants on 3rd Street is that the, the Deer District, the new restaurants, the new bars, haven't hurt the existing places. They're still full up, and if anything, maybe it's increased foot traffic to the area. So at least I, I think the early results are that this is a win all around. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. My comment to my my friend who was saying, I don't know, this still sticks in my craw. I I said, look, I, I think this is great for the community. It's great for the region. It's great for the state. And I don't think that this is... A temporary bump. I, I think that you're really, for the first time in a long time, seeing some sustained sort of economic development in an area that, Lord knows, has been pretty much a moonscape for the last couple decades. I think Pfizer Forum is a hit. I think the area around there is a hit. The early results, I think, are nothing but positive. I don't think this has hurt the surrounding businesses. But let's tee this up. Are we glad that that facility is there? And are we glad that the taxpayers contributed to make that happen? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line we discuss in just a moment. My answer is an unqualified yes. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's start with Josh on the south side. Hi, Josh. Hi. Uh, great success. I, if you've been down there, there's no way you can get into any of the new restaurants. 
or bars. The lines are super long, so they right. have to go to the surrounding area. There's right. just so many people down there, and I think only more will come. Well, yeah. See, what I think is happening is I, I think it's doing what I at least hoped it would do. It, it's bringing all sorts of people into that area, people who otherwise would not have gone down there, and they're hanging out on the plaza, and they're going to those restaurants that are there and those bars, and they're spilling over, and they're going to Major Goolsby's, or they're going to um, you know Turner Hall, or they're going to Buck Bradley's, all those different places. They're getting business. If your friend is honest, he should be critical of Miller Park because I think it was a much worse deal. And the spillover isn't that great because you're too far from a lot of the bars and restaurants to go to any of those places. So he's honest about being critical of millionaires making money. Maybe brewers are... You should be critical of that too. Good. Well, no, thank, I, I, yeah, we we didn't even get into the whole Miller Park thing. But I mean, again, I, I just I think in the case of Miller Park and in the case of Pfizer Forum, I mean, here's the reality: if you hadn't have built Miller Park and that was all taxpayer money, the brewers were going to leave. So I think you have to fairly say, all right, is this community better off because over the last twenty years we've had baseball in it and we've had you know all the excitement and all the activity and things like that? And my answer would be an unquestioning yes. Um, from an economic perspective in the immediate area, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think people come to the games and there is a spillover to an extent. But as far as all the bars and restaurants surrounding the immediate area of Pfizer Forum, you can see the impact. Maybe a little more difficult with Miller Park, but I'll tell you, you look at all the shuttles that are going back from different bars and restaurants and hotels. Um, th- th- there's there's a lot of people who are coming to southeastern Wisconsin to attend baseball games as well. 414-799-1620. Paul in the North Shore. Hi, Paul. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking the call. Sure. What do you um, think? Yeah, it's been, it's been a great success, huge success. And I'm okay with some of the tax dollars going there. You know, I, I think we should have a little bit of skin in the game. Uh, you know, I look at other, where other of my tax dollars go, and I don't use some, some or a lot of those services, but it's a quality of life uh, issue, and I think it's been nothing but great. And, Evident in the TNT broadcast on on uh, yeah. Wednesday night. Look at all the people down there. Look at how the announcers are talking and glowing about the city of Milwaukee. Right. Surrounding states, people can come and visit. It's a destination for a weekend. Right. And if I need some tax dollars to help that out, I'm okay with it because it's only going to, you know, rising tide only. You know, health rises all both. Well, right. If we want to, if we want to critically analyze, I mean, some of the different things that we have spent money on in this community over the last couple of decades, I, I'm all with that. But at least it looks to me, early returns, Pfizer Forum has been, it's been one of the things you can't even argue that it's been such a positive. I agree. It's, it's awesome. No, thanks for calling. And, and I mean, again, I also appreciate, I mean, I do also appreciate the public private partnership investment in this that yes there is taxpayer money that's involved and believe me i understand the argument well these guys are billionaires and you know you're you're you know why should the taxpayers be kicking in for this well it's because if the bucks weren't here and in fact the nba allowed them to move to somewhere else then what would you have you would have the aging um you'd have the aging bradley center you wouldn't have a professional basketball team you wouldn't have all that development and you wouldn't have anything at least on a regular basis attracting people to go down to that area and patronize the the existing bars anyways 4147991620 let's talk to mike in west alice mike you're on wtmj good afternoon Oh, hi. <clears throat> Great show, by the way. Thank um, you. Uh, yeah, I just want to make a simple comment that uh, while the stadium is a beautiful stadium, 
it was money taken away from the people that, uh, in my opinion, could have gone to something else. Uh, one thing that I guess we are ignoring in the economic boom that this has caused is the main driving factor for that is Giannis. It's mm-hmm. him winning games and the team. Mm-hmm. It's, the stadium has nothing to do with that. If this was a losing team, mm-hmm. we would not have this economic boom. Oh, oh, oh yeah, no, but, it, but at the same time, let's... Okay, you, you see all the people that are coming and they're hanging out. On, right, it, there's, there's no question the fact that the team is succeeding is, is driving a lot of the stuff. You wouldn't have TNT here if the, uh, you know, you wouldn't have Turner Network Television here if it wasn't for the, the Bucks in the playoffs. But, but again, having, having said that, you know, it, it, it doesn't at all kind of work together. Now there's this exciting place for people to go and hang out, and there's all that development in that area of the Park East that I've been describing as a moonscape com- for decades. I completely agree with you, but I believe the same crowd would have been drawn in the old stadium and we'd have, we would have been a winning team. Well, I mean, maybe. I mean, thanks for calling. Maybe. I, I, but, but I, well, no, I, I guess... Would there be excitement? Yes, there would be excitement. But would it be at the same level? I mean, see, part of the thing that's so cool here is you have the, these opportunities. Look, I remember the last time the Bucks were, you know, were good. We're in the Eastern Finals and stuff. I don't remember people flocking down. I don't, I don't remember hundreds or thousands of people flocking down to the plaza outside the Bradley Center. I mean, it just it wasn't situated and it wasn't suited for that. This this is that perfect location. It's kind of like a town square in certain respects. Now, again, I, I'm not naive. I get it. You know, the, the Bucks are, are winning. If this was a team that lost 50 games this year, okay, we wouldn't necessarily be having this conversation. But I think, at least in my opinion, what you're seeing is that it's it's something where everything is coming together, the right place, the right time. It's just a magical run. And And look, maybe... Maybe five years from now, the Bucks won't be any good. And maybe the novelty of that whole area will have worn off. And then maybe we're going to be having a different conversation. We're going to say, yeah, it was great that first year, but after that, it fell off. I hope that's not the case. I don't think that's going to be the case. But all I can say is, at least for the early returns, I think they've been exceptional. This is Jeff Wagner. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Groove's producing the show today and always. You kind of surprised me today. I thought you were going to come in and say, Jeff, I've got something to talk to you about. And I would have said, yes, what, what would that be? And I fully expected you to say, you know, I've decided I am going to be making an announcement tomorrow. I am going to be running for the, Demo- the nomination to the Democratic nomination to be the president of the United States. I fully expected you to say that to me because... Well, the truth is, everybody else is running for this, and I will tell you something, Rue. You have as much chance of becoming the Democratic nominee for President of the United States as probably about three-quarters of the people who have actually announced that they are running. You know, if the question was Bill de Blasio, the challenged mayor of New York, who announced yesterday that he was running, Bill de Blasio or you, I might be betting that you would be a more likely choice. This is one of the most amazing stories that's out there. And candidly, it's frustrating a lot of the Democratic Party hierarchy. 
because they're trying to figure out how can they retain the House of Representatives? How can they take over the U.S. Senate? And what they're seeing is a lot of people who they might like to see run for senator or run for governor or run for the House of Representatives. They're all running for president. They're all running for president. And and I'm telling you, if you come in later on and you say, I've thought about this over the weekend, Jeff, I'm getting into the race. I, I am willing to say that the minute that you decide that you're into that race, my guess is you have a better chance than probably, like I say, 75 percent who have already declared. You know what? What a zoo. What a zoo. And it's only going to be a bigger zoo as time goes on. But at least for the moment, I'm sitting there thinking maybe Groove for president. What do you think, Rusty? I mean, wouldn't he be okay, wouldn't he? Well. And I, <laughs> and I don't even know if he's a Republican or a Democrat, but it doesn't matter. Don't know what his politics are. It doesn't matter. I mean, if Bill de Blasio thinks that he could be elected, well, our producer, I think he's got just <laughs> as good a chance. Groove for president. Get in the race. Will he run? Stay tuned. It's time now for Jeff Wagner's Pop Culture Corner. Put aside the heavy lifting and call the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line at 414-799-1620 to get on the show. And now, here's Jeff Wagner. Big doing Sunday night. If you have HBO, it is the wrap-up of Game of Thrones. Now, I only watched the first year of Game of Thrones because I like to, I like to read the books. And I, I've only gotten through the first one. So at some point in time, if I get around to reading the books, or maybe I'll just give up on that thought and, and watch it. So I am generally familiar with the plot lines. The thing that happened with Game of Thrones is that the the, the author, George Martin, has only written five books. It's supposed to be like a seven-part series. Well, after the fifth season, the producers of Game of Thrones, they ran out of source material, so they've been kind of off on their own. And so for the last couple years, they've been... They don't have the the original source material to work with, so they've been kind of creating on their own. There is a petition out now. Over three-quarters of a million disgruntled Game of Thrones fans are demanding that the final season be remade with competent writers. (laughs) So there's a lot of people that are very, very unhappy with the the way that the Game of Thrones is is resolving itself, etc. I take no position on it because, again, I haven't watched the shows. But people are are really into this. And there's all these Internet things about what's going to happen and who's going to end up sitting on the Iron Throne. So Game of Thrones is wrapping up. Last night was the last show for The Big Bang Theory, another show which I I don't know that I've ever watched an entire – and I, I have nothing against it, mind you. It's just I, I never got into it, and, and so I, I just never watched it. But it was popular. It lasted for 12 years. That wrapped up. The 12-year run wrapped up. Uh, yesterday, there's I, I checked out on the Internet in anticipation of this topic. There, there doesn't appear to be a lot of outrage over – the way the Big Bang Theory ended up. Certainly nothing along the lines of the way that the people are upset with the Game of Thrones. And they don't even know for sure how that is going to turn out. All right, we get invested in our TV shows. We care about our characters. We spend an hour or a half hour every week 
year after year after year, rooting for certain characters and not rooting for other characters. We get invested in this, and these shows wrap up, and we have strong feelings. Did they get it right? Did they get it wrong? All right, in recognition of Game of Thrones ending, Big Bang Theory ending, Pop Culture Corner this week, 414-799-1620, what was the best, best series finale ever? On television, 414-799-1620. It could be a show that was on one of the cable networks. It could be a show that was on one of the pay networks. It could be a show that was on, you know, free TV. But when you think back about all the shows you've watched, when they wrapped up, what do you think, what show do you think got it right? 414-799-1620. We're back to take your calls in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. All right, TV fans, the show that you think wrapped up just absolutely the best. And we won't speculate as to whether Game of Thrones or Big Bang Theory will ultimately be on that list. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This is interesting. This almost never happens on these segments. We have an overwhelming consensus. Uh, Gru's producing the show keeps saying it's the same one over and over again that lots of people are saying. Let's start with Jim in Greenfield. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. So my favorite is Newhart. Okay, the second the second one. Right. So Bob Newhart had the Bob Newhart show where he was a, a psychiatrist, and then he finished that show and then went to the the inn in New England where he right. was the inn owner. And then they finished the very last episode of that, and he was with Suzanne Plachette in the first one as his wife. Right. She wasn't in the second one. And the very last episode, he wakes up in bed, <laughs> and Suzanne Plachette is lying next to him, and he says, I just had the strangest dream. <laughs> and back in the first series, he did. It was just yeah, a it, great it, ending. It, 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 no, thanks. And it caught... It caught everybody by surprise. Nobody, nobody saw that coming at all. And I, I, I would agree. If you were going to ask me the top two or three, if you were going to ask me that the best endings to a sitcom, I would say that was certainly in the top three. I, I think the Mary Tyler Moore show ended really, really strong where new management comes in at the TV station and they try to decide who the problem is and they fire everybody else and keep Ted Baxter, <laughs> which, you know, if, you, if you've worked in media, maybe you think that that's kind of how the new management takes approach of it. Not not here, of course. 414-799-1620, the best ending ever. Ray in Illinois. Ray, you're on WTMJ. Yes, it was six feet under. Okay. The greatest thing about it was because when they ended it, they showed what happened to the rest of the lives of everybody else for the next 50, 60 years. Right. What happened to them? Yeah, I mean, how the rest of their lives went. Yeah, you know, th- thanks for. I wasn't a huge fan of Six Feet Under, but it was set in this funeral home, and you're right. The ending, it they flashed forward to all the main characters, and it showed how they ended up dying. <laughs> you know, but it showed them, you know, in old age or whatever. Okay, Jeff, I hate it when any of my shows end, but I think Friends ended right. I know you're not necessarily a fan, but it ended up with everybody happy and moving on to the next stage of their life. It makes me happy for them. Yep. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. And don't get me wrong, I don't, I don't dislike friends. It's just that everybody I know, starting with my wife, they're just we, we're going to watch three hours of Friends a day. I just don't quite get it. But no, I, I think that was a good ending. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let me give you a show that maybe not a lot of you watched. Um, if you want to look for a dramatic show that ended, uh, a show called The Shield, which was um, a very 
it, it was kind of a, a really gritty sort of drama about a, a crooked police officer, and it had what I thought was about as perfect an ending as you can imagine, completely the opposite to The Sopranos, that I still think that ending was awful. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to uh, Garrett in Oak Creek here on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Um, I am going to go with Lost. Okay, you realize that's very controversial because some people love the way Lost ended and other people thought it was absolutely awful. Yeah, it's super controversial. I just think it's one of those ones that the rarer ones where it's left up for interpretation. And I think that is my favorite part about it is that no matter who watches it, you can you can watch the season finale and everybody right. has a different view on it. Right. And see, I guess for a lot of us, me included, I, it sounds like you're probably just a deeper guy than I am because I like to have closure. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of I like to see all the loose ends tied up and say, OK, I've invested X number of years in this and and they got home safe or whatever. Lost is a much great. But it, it's very, very controversial. And that's just like the Sopranos conclusion. You know, people either love or hate the end of loss. No question about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah, no, thanks for the call. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Steve in Green Bay. Steve, you're on WTMJ. I'll give you two. Best and worst. Best, I thought, when the best was justified. And right. worst was females' worst. Um, you know, I wouldn't disagree with you on either one of those, Steve. I was a huge fan. I, I, I loved St. Elsewhere. used to watch St. Elsewhere all the time, and at the end, it turns out that it's all the the dream. It's the whole thing has been the, a, a seven year dream of an autistic child. You know, it's like what really? Um, yeah, I, I thought saying elsewhere it was a disappointing sort of ending. Uh, Justified. I loved that show again. I think that was on FX too. I, I loved the show, and I, what I liked about Justified was just like with Breaking Bad. By the way, I think Breaking Bad had a very very good ending as well. It, it had it had an ending. You saw where all the characters ended up. It tied things together. Now, I mean, it, at least it, it wrapped up the storyline. They're talking about making a sequel to Breaking Bad. You know, we'll see. But I, I thought Breaking Bad was excellent as well. But I don't disagree with you about Justified at all. Let's talk to Mark in Green Bay. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Iowa, my vote would be for MASH. Okay. That three-hour, the, the big goodbye, farewell, amen, I think that's what it was called. Yeah, I think it kind of... Uh all of the characters that showed the kind of wrapped up the whole series. Uh, everybody went home at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was, uh, I, I thought it was really well done. Yeah, I did too. I th- thanks for call. I, I'll give you my beef with MASH. I, I thought the first hour where they had Hawkeye, the Alan Alda cra- character go, go crazy. I thought that was kind of contrived. The last two hours where everybody was saying goodbye was absolutely tremendous. Wish we had more time. A lot of people, the Fugitive, Star Trek The Next Generation, New Heart, Cheers, all sorts of great ones. Um, watch Game of Thrones this Sunday and weigh in. Like I say, a lot of people already disappointed. Got to take a quick break. John McCure and Melissa Barkley and Greg Matzik are on the road. They're down in the Deer District. We'll check in with them in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner.